Blog Talk Radio. Hey everybody, beautiful Friday. Excuse me, my my tongue got ahead of my uh, lips here. Beautiful, beautiful Friday morning here in Southern California. I just wanted to shout out real quick and remind you, it's Father's Day weekend and Mio Global, makers of Mio Alpha and Mio Fuse, is having a great sale on their products. Visit their site and just plug in Team DHP or Team Diaz and get a great deal on your, on your monitors. Let's go ahead and do this show with Dr. Phil Maffetone. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm with Dr. Phil Maffetone. He is the founder of the MAF method of heart rate-specific training and a host of other things that he's done. And we, we've met long ago, and I'm very, very pleased to have an opportunity to bring him up and have a conversation with him today. Phil, would you please say hello to our audience? Hi, Richard. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. So, Phil, I'm going to share with the audience, and you know, you and I, before we got started here, spoke of it already, but I was uh, I was hired, I was basically consulting for a heart rate monitor company, which will remain nameless at the moment, to meet you in Las Vegas at the Las Vegas Athletic Clubs in where you were conducting a symposium, I guess is the best word for it, for the trainers at the, the Las Vegas Athletic Clubs. And at the time, I believe there was four clubs. And so there was a host. I mean, I don't know how many trainers there were, but there was a lot of trainers. Those are big clubs. Yeah, they are very successful. And I, I believe the guy who put that on is still with them. I can't remember his name at the moment. Well, it was a family-run business. And I remember that the founder and creator of the club systems uh, was an older gentleman, and his son was essentially handling the reins at the time. And I had actually gone there under agreement with them to do testing in their clubs uh, after you and I uh, met. But um, you know, I'm going to fast track here, and I'm going to do a few things that I had always promised I would do if we got a chance to talk. <laughs> Number one, I want to apologize to you. I owe you an apology for all the things I said about you in your absence. And I'm going I'm to clear this up, okay? So you were talking about minimal running shoes, midfoot style running, essentially talking about the benefits of natural running before anybody, anybody had even thought to bring it to light. 
And I sat there listening to you talk about this, and I thought, this guy's crazy. And then, you know, you went on to, I mean, once you kind of got onto that rant, I looked at this, and I, I had some negativity in my heart. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I'm going to believe anything he says from here on out. And then we started to test your 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 180 minus your age prediction. And if you recall, you stood next to me, and we began testing some of these trainers, one after the other, to determine what the clinical evaluation of their th- threshold was. And I have to I have to say that when I did come home, better than 60% of the people we tested, your values were spot on. And it caused me, from that point forward, to refer to that that method of assessment in the absence of the ability to be tested. And this has been, like I said, it's been for the last 15 years, I've credited you with simplifying an approach to identifying what a, a good functional aerobic heart rate would be. But my apology is in regard to the fact that I thought you were nuts when you started talking about running in minimal shoes. And there, I remember very distinctly, there was an, a, a woman there. She must have been near 80 years old. And I don't know recall whether it was a half marathon or a marathon. She was a runner. And she was in these really, really minimal shoes, which were probably really hard to find back then. And she was swearing by all the stuff you were telling. I said, he's trying to kill this woman. <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and so then, you know, it came about where, you know, this whole thing with Chris McDougall and blah, 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 all that came about. And I started to take a, a closer look at, you know, the theories and practices and converted myself to a midfoot runner. And this has now been, uh, I'd say, probably about 10 years now that, that in, in my history doing this. And now here I am running a podcast called the Natural Running Network, actually created a certification for coaches to teach people the proper method in running and to encourage appropriate heart rate responses. And I really have to say that had I not met you, that there would probably have been a void in all of this. So I apologize to you. Well, apology accepted. Um, I've I've had um, many, many people... uh, Say a lot of bad things about me through the years, and you know this. When we met, this was um, fifteen, twenty years after. I mean, I had already been doing this stuff for twenty years uh, or longer, actually. Um, uh, the minimal running shoe stuff. We didn't talk about it in the seventies because that's all we had was minimal running shoes. But by the early and by certainly by the mid eighties. The shoes were getting thicker. So uh, it was right at that point I started talking about that. And all these other things, um, you know, the heart rate stuff had been developed by the mid-80s, by, I think, 83, 84. So um, it, it's, you know, it's it, it, it was tough back then um, talking to people who were captured by the new surge in thick shoes and the the carbohydrate trends, which, you know, that goes back to the 70s. So, um, and, and all these other things, training slow, you know, that that didn't go well in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And even today, it doesn't go well for, for many people. So it's, uh, it's, it's good to hear from somebody who has um, 
made some changes, and, and you're doing a, a fabulous job. Well, thank you. Well, here's the thing. Um, where the heart rate thing came about, that wasn't a tough thing for me to swallow because I've been doing VO2 tests. And, you know, back then I was pretty green with it. I was, you know, just to be absolutely clear, I, you know, it was a long time ago and, and it was fairly fresh for me. But here we are now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm contracted to do assessments for ESPN Sports Science. I've, I've worked with professional teams. I work with professional athletes. I've done just a ton of this work. And I've seen all kinds of various responses to the tests that I do. And it comes back to, when I prescribe exercise to people, it comes back to respiratory quotient and how much oxygen is being, being consumed by the body relative to the intensity of the work and what the most efficient prescription would be in order to encourage aerobic functionality. And I just find that right about that 180 spot is a pretty true uh, evaluation. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule. You know, I'll have people that'll be totally contrary to that type of uh, analogy. But at the end of the day, for the most part, you know, and by the way, I do, I do online coaching with clients that I'll never meet. They live in other parts of the world. And I'm trying to write program around heart rate. And I tell them that a good place to begin is just let's just start by subtracting your age from 180 beats per minute. We're going to use that as our aerobic threshold, and we're going to use that as a test bed for future progress. So, and I and I I'm just catching up actually on some of the work you've you've been doing, and I see that you know you're a fan of field testing. You know you get out there and you do quantitative result relative to the work you're doing and to see whether the performance sure. is improving. And this is something that I, I'm very, very staunch about. I, I do, uh, I have my people when I train them uh, conduct periodic uh, time trials relative to threshold at varying distances. So in the beginning, it may start out to be like a one-mile time trial, and I have them do a comparative analysis four or five weeks later. And then if we're, for example, training for a marathon, we may progress in that uh, assessment phase all the way up to, say, 20 miles to just get a sense of what can be accomplished while still aerobic and what are the responses we see, how, how, feeding strategies, hydration strategies, pacing strategies. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, hold, I, I owe you a lot for that. Well, I, I, I want to ask you a question. I, I, I never get to ask people questions on these podcasts, but here we are. Um, when you look at our queue and, and – for those not familiar, it's it's uh, you know we're looking at carbon dioxide output and oxygen uptake, and you make a ratio and you get RQ, and it reflects the percent fat burning and percent sugar burning. And at each heart rate, you can look at the RQ. So if you plot the RQ out, how often do you see, if you see, a so-called deflection point where the the RQ is slowly changing, and then all of a sudden, at a certain heart rate, it takes a, a a quick turn, and it changes a lot faster. Well, that's ventilatory threshold, what we're talking about, right? And well, and if you plot out the RQ, you could see the same pattern. But yeah, you, it, I mean, there's so many things tied together. Right. Um, well, in, in the system that I use, yeah, I have uh, nine panels that show all sorts of different information. 
Um, and what I do when I conduct the test, by the way, is I don't look at O2, CO2. I look at the respiratory exchange ratio. I will conduct the test relative to the way that's laying out. So I don't use a standardized protocol for testing. I use a, a protocol that is uh, just essentially something that I've done by feel and I've done so often that works for me. And it's very, uh, it's I'm very, I'm very reliant on the, the process because it, 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 I just I can almost sense when things are going to occur. So what mm-hmm. I mean by that is when there's a shift in that respiratory exchange ratio, I, yeah. can, I, I can almost sense it's going to happen. Yep. And predictably what happens is initially it starts to rise and then it'll dump. People get more economical when they get into a relative, relatively comfortable pace uh, in the work. And then, you know, then it starts to ladder back up again. But generally when I prescribe exercise, if I'm not even looking at the heart rate response, what I look for is a respiratory quotient or a respiratory exchange ratio of about 0.90, which is about 32% fat utilization. And between that and like 8.5 usually puts me right at about your 180. Now, I know mm-hmm. that's going to just be a little bit too much for a lot of people who are, that are listening to this, but I, I think you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think the bottom line for for people is that there's a, a, a good correlation between the 180 formula, which I didn't have the luxury of uh, treadmill tests until right after I developed the 180 formula. Um, and that's when I started seeing these deflection points um, when we looked at the RQ. Um, basically, it's, it's when the body is suddenly changing more to increased sugar and a little less fat and the the 180 formula seems to correlate with just before that point but you know it's the the bottom line is it's very individual and i i suspect if you looked at the 180 formula and then um had the the athlete or or yourself um um adjusted that 180 minus the age to which of the four categories the individual f- best fits in, you'll see a lot more correlation uh, to what you're seeing on the treadmill. When you say four categories, what are you referring to? Well, the 180 formula is a two-step process. Number one, you subtract your age from 180. And then number two, you choose one of four categories that best match your particular health and fitness Right. Status. Yeah, I remember that. So it's it's relative to uh, if you've been um, uninjured and training regularly, you get credit. If right. You've been right. Ill, it, basically, the the healthier you are and the more fit you are, and the longer you've been that way, the more you're going to add back to the 180 minus your age. And the uh, people who are unhealthy and and fit and injured, unfit and un- and injured are going to subtract additional, you know, numbers, usually five. And if you're on medication, you're going to subtract 10, because if you're on medication, it means you've got some more serious health problems. Otherwise, you shouldn't be on medication. Well, I usually don't uh, employ that that methodology, and I'll tell you why. Is that, especially when I'm dealing with someone at a distance, what I'm more concerned with is having a benchmark that I'm fairly confident better than confident, um, that it's an aerobic outcome. And then if I do comparative analysis at that mark, if I'm too conservative, that's just fine. 
but if I underestimate, that's no good. You follow me? So, right, that's, so, that's important. Yeah, so if I find out that, you know, and th- this is a thing that a lot of people are really having a hard time with because their perception is, and perception of the work that they do, is that they're comfortable, they're capable, and that i got to be wrong about this 180 beats per minute thing uh, or 180 subtractor age thing. And, you know, we, we develop this perception over time through our efforts and our success and our failures. And I find that commonly, and, and as you know, as long as there's still energy in the tank, you don't appear to be in jeopardy relative to the work you're doing, uh, given that you're not taxing yourself for too long. So I, I find more often than not, people tend to uh, overestimate what they're capable of, especially when they're trying to improve their aerobic functionality. Yeah, so. without without a doubt. It's it's a big problem, and, and you make some good points. You know, the, the, the bottom line for me um, is can you as an athlete perform better month by month at a sub-max level? And if you can, I don't care how you train. I, I have no alliance to any any particular training method uh i've used all of them um and if if your body can if you can demonstrate uh, objectively as objective as we can be with with humans um and i use the maf test which i I developed way way back when the 180 formula appeared um but it's a submax test so if you could if you can run at a submax heart rate faster today than you could a month ago and then next month you're faster still then you're improving and if that's the case and you you are consistently improving then there's a good chance that everything you're doing is working well not that we can't fine-tune things but um that's probably the the uh, you know for me the most important indication and and like you, um, I, I speak to people who I don't get to see, which is quite foreign to me, um, because I spent my career looking at athletes and looking at them on the track, looking at them in the office, looking at their posture, looking at their gait. Um, and that gave me an awful lot of information that I I use to make coaching recommendations, racing recommendations, dietary, I mean, everything. So, um, sure, it's, it's uh, very valuable to just ask a bunch of questions. If they're the right questions, you can often come up with uh, the same high-quality recommendations to individualize uh, training and eating and so forth uh, as you can with a person uh, when, they're, when they're right in front of you. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I I just just today released a show, actually that I did. Oh, I think I did it last summer, and um, oh man, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, I did an interview with a gentleman that wrote a couple books, marathon training books, half marathon training book. He's a coach, elite coach, uh, and coaches people at a distance. And coaches people in person and elite athletes, runners, elite athlete himself. Um, And in the course of the conversation, and by the way, this is someone that has, (laughs) I'm almost painting who he is. 
he's got a he's got a, uh, a, a you know I think he's got a master's degree in exercise physiology, which you know made the conversation interesting for me. And and then I asked him in the course of his training, does he employ heart rate in in his coaching? And he said no. And we prefaced the whole conversation with comments about how I test. Does he have access to testing? He does. And, you know, how we arrive at conclusions relative to the responses from the test and, you know, training recommendations and what have you. And he was on board with me for everything. And then he told me he just doesn't do it. And I, and I, I, I got lost. I, I'm like, how could you not do that? I mean, how, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm telling you, it's just me. I get it. And, you know, I'm going to have people listening to this going to think, man, what, this guy's a jerk. But I just, I just can't imagine standing over people and not taking into account the cost associated with the effort. It's 50, yeah. it's 50% of the equation. So, well, it's, a, it's an assessment tool, and why would you not want to use an assessment tool that is simple, readily available, and quite accurate? Well, it, it, it's a good indication of how your body's faring relative to the work you're doing and what the expense is uh, energetically. Mm-hmm. And so to suggest that you're going to prescribe greater intensity at this point in time relative to the work you did a week ago, less intensity, more volume, le- le- I mean, whatever the prescriptive measure is that you're taking out and handing out to people, without having any sense of how the body's responding other than asking them, hey, how do you feel? Or, boy, you're looking good today. And, you know, you're getting faster. Um, and, you know, you, you and I'm, I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I noticed that the, the greatest performances usually are what occur just before the injuries. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the classic. So I'm just, I, I don't know, I was just at a loss for understanding it. And, and it, this is a common common occurrence where coaching is concerned and i'm sure that you probably you know in all your work had thought over you know scholastic work i mean i work with cross-country runners in high school i don't coach them but they come to me privately uh generally because they're having performance issues and you know the parents have enough money and want to help the kid get you know get along in sport and I, you know, I'm just lost by the fact that they won't even take into consideration how critical an element that uh, heart rate response would be in training. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was uh, a tough sell back in the '80s. Certainly, a tough sell before the first wireless heart monitors came out in 1983. Um, I used a a hospital. A heart monitor for cardiac patients, uh, and I was using it on runners, and I had two of them in my office. It was like, wow, he's got two of them in his office. <laughs> and I would lend them out to athletes, and you know, they would run, and I'd say, okay, run at this heart rate, and then they'd come back and leave it with me, and I'd say, okay, run at that pace. You know, if you're on the flats, you know what your pace is, and um, that was a that was a tough sell until people started getting better. Mm. Uh, it's still a tough sell, as you as you found out last summer. Um, it's still a tough sell for for many people. Well, yeah, it is. It, it really is. And and but I, I think what happens is we get caught up, and um, a lot of the guys and I, I interview a lot of these guys, by the way. And a lot of the guys will keep coming back to me and say, you know, 
Arthur Lydiard, you know, he was the guy. He was great. His training principles to this day are, you know, the the bread and butter for training. And and I and I think that fundamentally what he do, he he created back then was good stuff. It's I mean it's it stood the test of time for the most part. And I, I'm not trying to take anything away from what he did, but I make the joke all the time. I, I'd like to be able to dig him up and show him what a heart rate monitor looked like to see what he'd do. <laughs> well, I did that. Was, uh, he was actually a patient of mine. He was in my office in, um, gosh, so it was, it was maybe it was 1983 or 1984. And I, uh, it might have been, been before the wireless heart monitors came out. So I had my cardiac hospital heart monitor, which, which was kind of like, had two crossing guard straps. One went over the shoulder, one went around the, the chest and, it had this big box in the middle, and you had to look down your shirt to see your heart rate, um, which was kind of funny. But when when women had them on, it really, you know, I, I got I got quite a reputation. It was I'll like, bet. oh yeah, she's one of Maffetone's. <laughs> and I put it on Arthur, and I said, you know, here's here's uh, here's a way for you to um, put some more substance, as as great as all the work you've done, you can actually put some concrete numbers on what you're talking about. And I put it on him and, you know, had him run. And, um, and he was, <laughs> he was, he was afraid of it. He was almost mad that I, <laughs> that I put a heart monitor on. Him. Well, he I said, can oh, we don't need, we don't need those things. I said, oh, well, you know, I, I can understand why I can understand why. Yeah. Because yeah. first of all, when you've spent your life, you know, following X principle, and then somebody comes along and almost shows you that you were wrong, it's really tough to swallow. And I've done this with, I mean, this is the common principle that happens with a lot of coaches that are in the industry. Uh, they're doing what they were taught, and they were they're, they're, their predecessors were doing what they were taught. So a lot of the information that is, is being, you know, disseminated could be very well from 50, 60 years ago. Sure, yeah, and, that is a problem. Yeah, and so um, I, I'm really glad you shared that with me because I, I can't tell you how many times I said that. You said I dug him up. I said, oh, geez, he didn't really do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love Arthur. And, you know, I read some of his stuff uh, back in the in the 70s. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I use his concept of the aerobic base, um, partly because of him, but partly because that's what I found. I just found that uh, these people who spend more time building the aerobic system, and, and part of it is because their aerobic system was trashed. So, um, you know, we were just building up a weak part of the body. Right. Um, so, I, you know, but I think there's there's a lot of good contributions by many people, and I still spend... Um, I've spent most of today in the medical library. Uh, fortunately, we can do it online now. But there's a lot of good stuff out there. Unfortunately, um, many people believe that there's a scientific consensus about all this training, and there isn't. And um, there's so much that we don't know, and there's really a, a serious lack of consensus Um 
but there's still there's a lot of good stuff. I'm just reading something about the immune system, and they were measuring markers and comparing it to high intensity training and low intensity training, and the difference, uh, you know, between the two was significant. High intensity training trashes trashes your immune system. Well, God, I read a a study about that in I think in the late seventies, and it clicked with all the things I was seeing clinically. And so I, I, I've known that all this time, but they're still doing studies and, and they're better and better studies and they're looking at markers that, um, that are better and so on and so forth. But there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there and there's, there's um, so much material that we should all be learning from um, and I don't, I don't see that ever stopping. No, of course not. Well, I, I got to tell you, I, I've made a, a couple of modifications just based on what I've, I've learned and found. And it's interesting how, as we evolve, that I would have never predicted 20 years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing today. And all the things that led me to where I am right now were never by design. I mean, there's just one thing led to another, and then it led to another. And then collectively, all this information that I've gathered helped me to develop some patterns and processes that I, I would have never been able to just go, you know, get an education and, and learn what I've learned. And so I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, going back to Lydiard, where his process is linear periodization. You know, you, you do this for a while, then you do this for a while, then you do this for a while. So it's progressive intensity over the course of time leading up to a competition. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's what they call nonlinear periodization where you don't prescribe wholeheartedly to staying aerobic. You, you inflect uh, various components of intensity in the processes uh, relative to when you feel they're needed. And what, one of the things that I do that I think is interesting, and, and I hope you may find interesting, is that I've injected what I call motor skill development training. So here comes the the need and the benefit of focusing on proper running mechanics. So what is traditionally done, as you know, in track and field is there's ambiguous distances that you run at the greatest intensity you could produce. So, for example, you run a 400 and you've got a, a fixed amount of recovery that you're going to take on before you produce another 400 or you go to the next distance, which might be 800, or so on and so forth. I don't do that. What I do is I have my clients run up to a point where they achieve their peak velocity, and I call it the mechanical threshold, where things begin, you identify things are beginning to go south. In other words, you're starting to make mistakes. And then you immediately back off. And generally I have them retire to a heart rate recovery that is well below their threshold. So generally it works out, depending on the individual, about 120 beats per minute or lower. And then they produce another one. So if you looked at the workout collectively, you'll find that 70% of the effort was uh, predominantly aerobic with these injections of these skill-based efforts. So you don't go up to speed and try to hang out there for 30, 45, 50 seconds because now you're starting to create a lactate tolerance type of uh, set. Right, and your mechanics get thrown off too. Yeah, so I immediately have them retire. 
uh, to recovery and produce them over and over again. And then because of the beautiful aspect of GPS and, and the way we can collect data over time, we start to see progressions in their ability to create greater and greater paces and quicker recoveries and thus improving their aerobic functionality. So I inject about 20% of that work into the base training season. So the first phase of training for me is 80% aerobic conditioning, principally right around the place that you put people, with about 20% of their influence being these motor skill sets. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great workout. I I was doing something like that this morning. Really? Actually. Yeah. Good. Um, and I think um, you're right. I think what happens is people go into this um, state where they are completing their 400 or their 800 or their, or their mile repeat, um, and half of that or the majority of that distance becomes a biomechanical stress. It's a suffer fest. Yeah. And there's no, so, pro- there's no progress behind that either. Well, it, you, you may make progress, but at the same time, you're trashing your body so much, and because most people don't recover, uh, you're not making any progress in many cases. Well, you know, and we, we kind of touched on Noakes, and, you know, I'm a fan of his central governor theory. Mm-hmm. And given that, you know, you get to this place where um, the intensity that you've created starts to violate the permission slip from the central nervous system, mm-hmm. and, and muscle function starts to get thwarted anyway. So you're really, obviously you're developing a tolerance to fatigue, but you're not progressing in your ability to produce more performance. Right, you're not you're not enlisting more mu- muscle fibers in the activity, and your gait gets distorted. You know, people people get to that point, and they they will often get the feeling that they shouldn't be doing that. They don't, you know, maybe I should stop, or it hurts, or I shouldn't do. It. But then there's this social thing, especially if you're with a group of athletes. Um, where you you know you don't want to be a quitter you don't you know you've got to finish the workout this is this is my schedule and next thing you know you're injured so uh yeah and the central governor you know i i mean the bottom line here is that we should all be training in such a way that we go out the door without thought of what we're going to do we're just going to go out and work out and we go for a run or we go for a ride and we do what our brain wants to do. It's like the ultimate fartlek workout. But we, we've, we've interfered with our brain socially with all the junk that's out there. You know, talk about junk food. That's bad enough. But then there's the junk information, the no pain, no gain, uh, you know, more is better uh, if 100 miles a week is good, and well, gee, 120 is 20% better, and 150, let's let's hit 150. That's a nice round number. Um, and you know, people forget that we're supposed to be doing this for our health, uh, among other things, you know, and it should be fun. Okay, so now you often doesn't happen. Now you just caused me to bring this up, so. <laughs> Well, I, I'm going to ask you this. I get this a lot. I've been doing a lot of work with obstacle racing athletes. And there's a lot of people that are in that 
sport that are listening. And these people are smitten by the sport. They love to get out there and challenge themselves. And to the point that, you know, this is kind of new for me, quite frankly, where you race on Saturday, you race on Sunday. Uh, you might do a sprint on a Saturday, do, uh, you know, what they call the super on a on a Sunday, maybe even do what they call a trifecta, where you do a half marathon distance obstacle race. But they are so smitten by the want to compete that they, they're racing every week. There's really little, if any time, for any fundamental training in preparation for an event, there's sure, because you're you're recovering and then and then you're you're tapering for you know getting ready for the the next week. You're, you're hoping to recover <laughs> yeah. before you race again. But to add to that, and again, I, I I tend to get myself in trouble. I'm going to do it again. There's a lot of guys out there that are doing these sport masks. What are your thoughts on that sport mask? Uh, you'll have to remind me what that is. Okay, I, so it's basically it's a it's a neoprene face mask that has these valves in it to inhibit your ability to take on air. And yeah. so, so to some degree, they're suggesting that it's like altitude training. Yeah, it's nothing like altitude training. It's like the nitrogen tents. You know, they're, they're nothing like altitude training. Altitude training um, is not what it is. Is um, it? it, it it, it isn't altitude training. It's living at altitude, and training at a lower altitude is 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 really the 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 model, right? The formula. And for some reason, that has turned into oh, we got to go to altitude and train. And places like Boulder, Colorado, have evolved with that misconception. And through the years, I've seen all kinds of gadgets that have come and gone. Breathing, you know, a breathing device that restricts the airflow in and re devices that restrict the airflow out. And, you know, back in college, high school and college, we, you know, we would do these, you know, 50 meter sprints, all out sprints and then hold our breath. You know, I, I've never seen any of that stuff really work. Well, and I have guys that are sponsored athletes that are swearing by it. And I, I've yet to, I've yet to offer my two cents to it because I'm not comfortable one way or the other making a determination as to value in it or not. Um, but what what is commonly going on, obviously enough, is you know they talk about uh, developing the diaphragm and developing the respiratory muscles because you have this this uh, airflow resistance, and they're saying that they're actually recovering quicker because they're they're training this way. And then I've had a lot of guys tell me under, you know, under cloak and dagger, they would tell me that they don't actually use it while they're doing intense effort. They they put it on while they're recovering. And, I, you know, I just don't know yet. I, I don't know what to think about it. And I just was, thought it'd be an interesting question for you. Yeah, I, I've, I've not seen it, so I, I can't really comment, but I've seen so many similar things. And if you want to strengthen your diaphragm muscles, um, start singing. <laughs> um, or if you really want to, you know, the abdominals are such a big part of it. And if you do too many sit-ups, you're trashing your, your diaphragm. But, you know, one of the great things for the diaphragm is to do a straw exercise. And I, I, I've done this from the beginning um, where you get a, you get a big straw, the biggest, you know, diameter straw you can get, and you stick it in your mouth and you breathe in slow with proper belly breathing 
and you exhale and you, you know, you may be able to do that twice in the beginning. And then gradually as you get stronger, you could, you can breathe in and out several times. And as it gets easier, you get a, a straw that's more narrow and you work your way down to those really little tiny straws. And that's really the, the most effective. Um, and, and I've measured this, uh, pre and post with vital capacity. And you can improve your body capacity significantly by doing that. Really? Well, there you have it. Well, maybe we should go into the straw business. <laughs> you know, I, somebody um, recently, um, was it was it on a podcast? Um, yeah, it was Chris McDougall. I did oh, a podcast wow. with him uh, a, a few days ago. And uh, he got a question about, I don't know what it was, but he said something very interesting, which was, there's, there's, you know, if you, if you have a concept, uh, burn fat, you know, eat fat, don't eat carbohydrates, um, uh, train slower. If you have a concept that isn't going to easily be monetized, then it's not going to get popular. And I thought that was very interesting. So straws are, you know, it's not, not going to be a big successful business. There's plenty of straws out there. Um, uh, you know, they're still used surprisingly, and um, I don't know. Well, we don't have to go to China to manufacture them <laughs> because there's not a lot of tooling that's going to be necessary. Right. If anything, we can order them in different color codes relative to the diameter. Sure. And we could do like a six-pack. And so like the bigger straw will be for the first week, and the next one, next color code goes to the next week. And you know, like yep. a like a box of crayons, we'll sell them for forty nine ninety five. Wow, we could we well, could write a book, do a bunch of videos, there you go. seminars, that's right. get on TV, get a couple of really good looking models to do it. And, yeah, that's important. Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. So, all right. So, uh, you know, talking about Chris McDougall, I want to talk to you about running shoes a little bit. Now, I, I don't know, I don't know. I get into trouble all the time, but I, I uh, I've done. By the way, it's okay to get in trouble all the time. Um, and I had a problem with it for years. And then I realized, hey, this it's okay. <laughs> so I just, just wanted to make that comment. Well, you know, the good thing is, is that when you get to a particular age, you just don't really give a damn what other people think anymore, right? You know? Yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's it. And I don't work for anybody, so it's not like I'm going right. to get fired, right? Right. So, but... Uh, Anyway, so the shoe thing. I, I've done some consulting recently for a shoe manufacturer, and um, I, I have a sense of the industry. And you know, for for a stint there for a while, we sold some shoes, and we would not sell anything that we felt would be contrary to your ability to run uh, in a midfoot running fashion. And and you know, you know, obviously enough, we didn't want anything with a real uh, steep heel to toe angle. Wouldn't sell anything like that. And wouldn't even wouldn't even carry anything like that, which, by the way, is why my uh, shoe business failed miserably. Yeah. But so here we are now. We had this whole Chris McDougall thing, where everybody got into Vibrams. Everybody was trying to run barefoot. Everybody was trying to find some fashion of zero drop shoe to play with. And then it turned 180 degrees with the advent of the Hoka. And now the entire industry, looking at the success of the Hoka, has put a lot more cushion under their shoes. 
they're they're trying to maintain a relative zero drop and totally dispatched all the arguments they created for why you would want to be in a minimal shoe for why you want to have all this cushion beneath you and i'm at a point now where i am almost incapable of putting on a pair of shoes if you saw my running shoes right now my big toes are about to stick through the bottom of them because I haven't found a shoe that I can put on that meets my requirements anymore. And I, I can't run in a completely minimal shoe. I'm not there yet, and I don't know that I want to mm-hmm. go there. But, oh, God, what are your thoughts on I, I know. I, I, I have the same problem. Um, I have I have a, a number of shoes that are uh, shoes that I've gotten uh, over the years, uh, given to me by shoe companies, and you know, some of them I put on, and I just, I just, I can't do anything with these. Um, but some of them work well. I I ran this morning in a pair of Ultras. They're they're an older pair. I this I don't a, think they sell them anymore. They don't. <laughs> That's exactly what my toe's sticking through. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about the the Superior, or no? Excuse me, the uh, Instinct, right? 1.5? I don't know. I don't know what they call. They're they they will the early some of the earlier ones right. that they made. Right. I think. Yeah, I've um, got I've got like four pair. The evolution we used to sell them. I had the evolution of those shoes, and then lo and behold, they start sticking stuff underneath the shoe. And I yeah, I, I heard that. And now, I, heard now that. I can't wear them. Yeah, I, for a long time I had um, Maestros, uh, Pumas. Uh. Um, somebody brought me back a pair from Italy where they, they came out with them initially and they were just, they were great. And then I, you know, I can't find them. Um, so, uh, what do we wear? I, you know, I, I did something I haven't done in, I, I won't say years, I'll say decades. I went to a shoe store. I went to two shoe stores and I won't bore you with the experience, but, um, I didn't buy anything, and uh, <laughs> the conversations I had were um, kind of funny. Uh, but uh, you know, I didn't see anything. Um, oh, I, yeah, I, I tried. I tried some shoes on, um, and they just they just didn't work. Well, I I did the same thing. Uh, it was about uh, I think it was last weekend. My wife and I went because we're. I, I have two running clinics I'm doing in the next couple weeks. And I'm embarrassed by how shoddy my shoes look at the moment. And I, I'm I'm just at a loss. I've been having a hard time figuring out what to do. So I thought I'd go looking for some shoes, and I had the same experience you did. I, I know better than to enlist the, the support of the, the salesperson. So I just basically walk around and look at what's up on the wall and you know, I, I say, do you have one of these in that size? And, you know, I try it and, you know, generally come away very disturbed by the, by the experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know the answer um, other than to keep looking. Uh, I, I, I used to, and I still do say, that all the companies make some good shoes. You have to find them, right. which is not, not easy to do because not all the stores carry everything and they don't carry everything in your size and if you find something and it's perfect most likely you're never going to find it again right um that's that's called marketing right uh and it's really sad but um i i just 
I, I don't know. And again, maybe my feet are getting older too. But I remember in the 70s and early 80s, buying shoes was fairly painless and quick and easy because you kind of knew what you wanted and you tried on this and you thought, well, maybe I'll try on that new pair of Adidas, you know, it, it, and you could often just go into one store and get what you needed, but um, not anymore. No. Well, there, I, I'll tell you, I'll share with you that I, I've had conversation with a company just yesterday by the name of Scora. I don't know if you're familiar with the shoe, but they sent me a pair of shoes while we were still selling shoes some years back. And they're made of, uh, I want to say, calf skin or goat skin or something like that. And they're zero drop. I mean, they're very minimal shoes, well designed. But they were just too minimal for me. So um, I, they've been in my closet ever since. And I pulled them out this morning to do our workout, and I, and I ran in them. And uh, the where we where we do some functional strength training about a mile and a half from here, so we we ran to the park to do the work, and I wore them, and that was the first time that I'd ever run, I mean, any kind of distance at all with a minimal shoe, and I got away with it, I was fine, um, but it was just I knew that it was just a little bit too too much earth for me because I'm just not conditioned to it yet. So they happen to be size 13. <laughs> well, you and I both. Yeah, and by the way, they just, they just uh, I don't know if it's been recent or not, but they, they have a new shoe. They're supposed to send me a pair. Uh, we had that conversation yesterday, but they have a, if you look at Scora and pull up Tempo, the Tempo has a little, they call it plush, but it's it's really uh, probably right on the same level as, as was that Instinct, and a nice ample toe box, zero, zero drop, and uh, well, it looks like it's pretty well constructed. So they're supposed to send me a pair of 13s, incidentally, <laughs> in the next wow. uh, next couple of days. So you might want to look that up. Well, that's my size, yeah. Mr. Scora. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, well, I'll check them out because, yeah. you know, the problem is um, I, I, I generally won't buy – I haven't bought a pair of shoes in I don't know how long. But I don't mind buying a pair of shoes, but I won't buy them – on the internet, I, I need to I need to see them and I need to wear them and I need to go out and run in them for a, a minute or so. Um, otherwise, I I don't want to take a chance. Right, I'm with you. Wow, boy, you know we could probably sit down and do this for the you know for six hours. You know? Yeah, because uh, there's just uh, there's so many parallels in in what we do, and again. You you try to introduce me to the the concept of a minimal approach to running and, and getting in a more natural position when I run long before anyone else. Had I had that head start, geez, I wonder where I'd be right now. You'd be wearing minimal shoes. You'd be taking <laughs> you'd be taking the inserts out of minimal shoes. That's what I do. Yeah, <laughs> I take the inserts out. Most of them come out. Some of them don't. Um, but. Um, yeah, I, I I I suspected that it was getting more and more difficult to find those things, but uh, yeah. Well, it's the it's the profitability, you know. It's like yeah, exactly. Some, somebody looked at, somebody came up to the guy and said, you know what, you had a really cool idea. It's kind of novel. It's kind of boutique. But when you look at the masses, these are the people. There's a bazillion people out there buying shoes, and ten percent of them know what you're talking about. And so we want to make money, so you got to sell them to the other ninety percent. 
Yep. And exactly. I'm a stock, I'm a shareholder, and we basically own you now, and we want to make money. Yep. And that's the unfortunate truth. Yeah. So I guess uh, we just got to keep banging the drum, and maybe if enough people listen to us, eventually we'll get back to where we we're supposed to be. Well, I thought that was going to happen, and um, like you said, all of a sudden the industry turned around. They said, uh, whoops, we're, we're neglecting our, the 90% who's you know, buying our shoes without making noise. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that the, the, the sea of obstacle racers now, I mean, it's huge right now. This is getting to be such a, a phenomenon. They all are looking for and and competing in relatively minimal shoes. Mm, interesting. And what's interesting is that they're also well because they're running on natural surfaces. Yeah. You know these courses are done over hill and dale, and they they are you know the shoes that they're running in tend to have a little bit of tread on the bottom simply to to get up the obstacles or climb up the hill, but there is zero drop in their middle. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these people, uh, number one, if they're running on the road at all, they're running in a shoe with a heel, and they're trying to transition back and forth, which is a big no-no. And they, uh, but they're they're racing in them, so maybe that'll start to sp- spark the interest in the industry, and possibly start bringing out a whole new guard of uh, more uh, yeah. interesting shoes. Yeah, it 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 could, and I hope it does, um, but I doubt it will. I'm still very much into uh, spending a lot of time without shoes on the feet so the muscles can uh, develop well and, and stay developed well. And um, if if uh, one can run barefoot some of the time, even just, um, you know, short, short jogging uh, to warm up, for example, uh, that's going to be very, very helpful. And I'm I'm barefoot all the time, literally, um, and uh, you know unless I'm traveling or something, obviously. Um, but you know it's just such a healthy state. Oh yeah, well we train that way commonly. Uh, I would say that uh, you know I have a group that I work with in the mornings, and at least two of the two of the days that we trained this week was barefoot. Functional functional strength exercises barefoot. Your range of motion is dramatically enhanced. I, I just, you know, we run on grass, and I usually have them pace out where we're going to be running uh, slowly before just check the ground to make sure there's nothing that's going to cause them any grief. And then after that, we start proceeding to do our work. And uh, as a matter of fact, we were in, in the infield of a football stadium just yesterday morning doing repeats in the, in the field. They're basically um, motor skill drills. Mm-hmm. And then we actually started going up and down the stadium stairs barefoot. Um, and, yep. you know, just doing, you know, bunny hops and things like that. And, yeah, so I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah, it's a great, you know, it, it's, uh, and you're right about alternating with the, the thicker shoes and the ones that are not zero drop. You know, get get the, the get the shoe that fits your foot and don't get the shoes that somebody else, who's selling shoes tells you to get because you're maybe a little overweight or you're tall or you're not racing at a five minute pace or, you know, all these ridiculous things that they use to sell these thicker sold shoes. 
Yeah. Well, Phil, I got to tell you, I, I, I'm just beside myself with, with glee here. I, I enjoyed the conversation with you. Likewise. And I, and I know there's a ton of things that we could have touched on and we didn't. Uh, so it sounds like we're probably going to need to get you back and, and, and touch on some of the things we didn't touch. That'd be great. Um, where, where are you living now, Phil? Uh, I'm I'm half the year in the mountains of Arizona and the other half of the year in the mountains of uh, New York State in, in the Catskills, wow. where my kids and grandkids are. So it's um, it's you know it's cool here all all year all summer long, and it's cool in Arizona through the winter. So it's uh, it's a nice situation. Sounds like you're living the life. It's the way it should be. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could pull that off. I'm stuck here in beautiful Southern California for for the rest of my life, I think. Well, it's not the worst place to no. be. A little too much traffic for me. But. Yeah, yeah, for me too. You're doing the good thing, man. You've been doing it for years and years. You're way, way, way out there ahead of most of the people that are out there pontificating these days. And, and again, uh, I, I, I was very pleased to be able to apologize to you finally. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I'm looking forward to another chance to have a, a chat with you. Thanks, Richard. I'm looking forward to it as well. All right, man. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.